Welcome to the Real Estate Syndication Show. Whether you are a seasoned investor or building a new real estate business, this is the show for you. Whitney Sewell talks to top experts in the business. Our goal is to help you master real estate syndication. And now your host, Whitney Sewell. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, our guest is Ferd Neiman. Thanks for being on the show, Ferd. Thanks, Whitney. Glad to be here. Ferd is a mobile home park lawyer, owner, operator, investor, podcaster, MBA, CCIM, and broker also. He focuses on solving complex real estate problems. He is passionate about real estate and helping others. Ferd, welcome to the show. It's just interesting. I know you and I were talking about this for the show, but just you know, branding yourself as that mobile home park lawyer, it's, it's just amazing. It's a, a great idea that you, know, you can focus in that niche, be an expert, and then people know who that expert is. And so I'm looking forward to learning more about you know, yourself and diving into the mobile home parks and how you're helping these other operators and how you've got to where you're at now. But, so give us a little more about yourself and your practice and your mobile home park business. Yeah, so I'm based here in Kansas City. So I practice mobile home park operations in the Midwest. And then on the legal services, I'm pretty much going nationwide. I don't do litigation or like evictions in court in other states. But here, I pretty much touch a lot of operational consulting on retail license, water sewer issues, LLC setups, contracts, leases, title work, title objections. I'm a zoning and real estate lawyer by trade. So I do a lot of zoning and permitting issues, which are, is really important in the MHP space. Grandfathering is very important in this asset class. Do some syndication work on the legal side. Do some syndication work on the operational side as well. And then, you know, all your other kind of blocking and tackling of contracts and, and real estate law and can just kind of consulting on MHP. So that's that's kind of the current practice. You know, by way of background, like I said, I'm an attorney by trade. I practiced law at a boutique real estate firm here in Kansas City, probably the best firm in the metro. Did zoning law, tax incentives. Before that, I was a county appraiser here in Kansas City youngest in county history to do that and had a 75 person team and eight million dollar operating budget and worked in government for five years went to, i pretty much had two jobs my whole life you know i went to school for a decade but i was doing that all while working i went to law school while working full-time so it's just been the hustle but and today i got two jobs now i'm owner operator and lawyer so it's been, it's been a fun ride but look forward to doing more Wow. You know, went to law school while working full time. I mean, I can relate to that. Just two businesses or two jobs and working full time while, you know, getting a business going and growing and all these things. That's not easy, but it shows just your determination and a willingness to make it happen, which I'm sure uh, is so crucial to where you're where you're at now as well. Let's dive into, you know, your niche, your specialty, which is mobile home parks, especially from the legal side. I know you mentioned a few things there like zoning and permits and grandfathering and even syndicating. And let's talk about some of those things as it relates specifically to mobile home parks and issues that, you know, uh, people you're working with are having in those places. Sure. I mean, with an MHP, it's, it's very common for municipalities, you know, cities in particular, to not like mobile home parks. There's a stigma, you know, they think of their trailer parks or, or worse. And, you know, they think they're hotbeds for crime and poor people. And, and as a result, they want, want to get rid of them. They'd much rather have a mobile home park be torn up and become a Home Depot or a new apartment or new hotel or McMansion neighborhood. So they're very hostile. They put a lot of laws in the books, many of which are unconstitutional. The property rights are constitutional rights. So there's really three types of mobile home park. There's legal conforming, which is rare because that means it's up to the current code and it was legally permissible at, at some point in the past. 
those are mostly new development, very little new development. You've got the illegal park, which is, you know, the guy, somebody built it without permission and just the government's looking their way because the guy's, you know, friends with the mayor. But, you know, the next guy, if you or I buy it, they're going to sting us and say, oh, you can't get rid of that. You got to get rid of that. You can't have it, even though it's been there for 50 years. So you never want to buy it illegal. But so most of the mobile home parks fall in the middle, which is the grandfather status, which is, is legal, meaning it was permissible at the time it was built, but it's now non conforming with the current code. So a lot of what I do is try to get some of the restrictions limited as it pertains to setbacks, internal and perimeter setbacks to basically allow for better infill and without being classified as a new development or redevelopment. Because the name of the game in MHP, I mean, depending on the type of asset you buy, but if you're buying heavy infill or, you know, kind of a rehab method, you got to bring in new homes and you bring in new homes on old lots that are typically smaller and configured differently. And cities put a lot of restrictions in place, many of which are invalid. So it's my job to you know, read the code, you know, get smart on that city, that state, and negotiate, hopefully, in a, in a you know, cordial manner. But sometimes it just becomes abrasive and adversarial to city, and you have to fight for your property rights. That's a really big issue. And, and zoning is important in all real estate, but in, in MHP, it's probably the hardest to get zoned. And there's more hostility towards it than about any other asset class. And would that be if you're building a new project or or you have one that's illegal, like you talk about, like you talked about, that you'd be worried about the zoning? Most of the zoning work I do is on existing projects where somebody wants to a new owner wants to one prove the permits valid, two prove they can bring in new homes and kind of get a certificate of zoning. But I, I don't just ask the city; they send me the zoning because then they're going to send you what it is. And you're like, well, no, no, I'm not going to accept that. I read the code, I negotiate with them, I draft a zoning letter and say. You know, he or she, you know, whoever it is, I need you to put this on your letterhead and sign it. And then I can go to the title company and I get a zoning endorsement, which is like another set of insurance, like belt and suspenders, so that if a different administrator of the city comes in down the road and changes city position, I've already got a backup plan. As far as new development, those are very rare. It's going to be very location, city specific. I mean, nationwide, I think there's 44,000 alone parks. There are less than two dozen constructed in a given year. More, I mean, it's a dying, it's, it's going extinct. I mean, relative, there, there's more being redeveloped and thrown away than are being recreated or, or created from new. So that becomes more of a, to some degree, a blue state, red state issue, but also I'm in the process of expanding two parts I have now. So expanding is still hard, but I'm, I'm able to do it in one of them because it's it's in the county. So it's outside city limits. But when you get outside either the county, you often run into things like no city water, no city sewer which then increases the development cost, the risk, et cetera. So in, in, the, in a practical world, there are very few people out there developing new mobile home parks. I'd like to. I've got a development background on retail, so I, I understand the entitlement process and permitting process from that standpoint. But it's really just finding a location in a city that, to play ball and a market that has the right economics to make it make sense. Speak to the due diligence process a little bit as far as, you know, if we're going to buy a a park now, one, to make sure it's not illegal like you talked about, but two, you know, I'm sure we should be thinking about, okay, is there room to expand? Is it permitted for that? You know, what's our options there? Or, you know, we do have to move a park out. Can we move a new one in? How do we ensure, you know, some of those things during the due diligence process so we know we're ready as soon as we close? Like all real estate, there's kind of the big items that you just you pretty much hire third party professionals for. Like you've got to get a phase one environmental. If the environmental engineer says it's dirty, you know, you, you kill the deal. Maybe there's a phase two or something that can fix it. But for the most part, you get a phase one, you get a survey, ideally an alta survey with some table A items. Obviously, you need to make sure the deal is financially feasible. So you run your market, you run your economics, you look at the market rents, you look at your assumptions, your property taxes, all that stuff. 
when you see the bankable, you get an appraisal, but those are kind of like third party reports from the due diligence on the buyer operator side. You know, I want to look at the first, I want to save money at the beginning. I'm not going to go spend money on those reports. You're in, you're in for 10 grand a minute when you're in you need to do that. So before I spend all the money, I get bids on that stuff right out of the gate, but then in each gray area, but right out of the gate, I'm doing a test ad. I'm putting an ad on Craigslist, Facebook, local newspaper. Here's the, you know, $800 a month, three bed, two bath, 1,216 square feet, and then see if you see how many people bite on it. And I get a feel for the market. Obviously, I need to look at the zoning with the city. That's generally you hire a lawyer for it, unless you're competent in that area yourself. Make sure the zoning's good, the permit's good. You want to make sure that you check out the utilities. Most of the real estate, if you're buying a hotel, it's probably not on a septic, right? You're buying a mobile home park, it might be on a septic. It might be on a lagoon. It might be on a wastewater treatment plant. You might have well water. Well, all of those things include more risk. You need to have, you need to get budgets for reserve. You need to get professionals inspected. You need to camera the sewer lines. I got about the 75 point checklist that I go through. You know, I'm referencing some of the big fatal issues, but you also want to just make sure you can bring homes in, see see if the city prohibits vicious dogs of some sort. See if you can put, you know, for sale signs and banner signs out on the street. Where do we find that information? Like, where would we go to search, you know, those things with the city? Depends on the municipality. I mean, a, a bigger city, like I'm in Kansas City, they're going to have a, a full code. You can typically go to their website and just type in Muni code, M-U-N-Y, or for city code. Sometimes they call it a uniform development code. You can go to the planning website. Sometimes, you you know, if you don't know how to drill down on that stuff, I would say just go to the city website or county website and look for planning or development and find who the planning administrators and call that number and say, what are the restrictions? What, what, what can I do and not do? And most cities are quasi-helpful where they'll at least point you to the right document. Uh, you know, the ones that are really helpful will send you the exact excerpts from the code that you want to verify, or at least you want to put it in their zoning letter that, that binds them in writing. And there's about 10 things I put in the zoning letter that some of them have mentioned here, but there's a lot of the research standpoint. You can go, you want to know the market area. So like, you know, if I'm going to some town, Joplin, Missouri, you know, I know where Joplin is, South Kansas City by two, two and a half hours. I don't really know what the vacancy rate is in that town, what the market rents are for apartments, what the market rents are for lot rent, for mobile homes. So I can make, I can look it up on Google, call those places in secret shop. I can go to bestplaces.net or, or run a report from a scout or some of the real estate source to give me some of that information. Look at the employment, you know, other due diligence you do typically is you want to look at the, you want to have good employers, meaning typically government university and healthcare, because those don't really go out of business. You don't want to be a one horse town where it's like, there's the one meat plant and everybody works at the meat plant. And then Smithfield Foods moves the meat plant and now you're stuck holding the bag on a trailer park. So diverse economies are good. County seats, lots of government jobs, good. And then the personal preference of what's your bandwidth as far as how far you want to go from your home base, how much money you have, and if you want to park that's stable, which is going to typically cost more. Or be a more premium, or do you want a heavy lifting project, which you can get by at a, a discount, but you, it's harder to do that if you got a full time job. Some of that's subjective as to what your investment goals are, but that's just because um, some of the process I go through on every deal. That's great. I appreciate you elaborating on those things. You talked about purchasing an illegal park. I thought, okay, well, you know, we need to make sure we understand how not to do that or how we make ensure we don't do that, right? That's so important or that we'd have that information up front. And so what about just that process of working with someone like yourself? How involved should our attorney or like yourself be involved, you know, when I'm going to purchase that mobile home park through those discussions or talking about permitting or zoning and, and whatnot? 
Yeah, that's going to depend on your level of sophistication and your level of interest in doing work. So some people will say, hey, I want to hire you to go through and your team to do all these due diligence steps also. Well, that becomes more expensive. Some people say, just do the zoning letter, just do the PPM, that kind of thing. Some people call me and say, I'm thinking about getting involved in real estate. Well, then they need it. They need to create an LLC. I give them my letter of intent. I've got a really strong letter of intent for buying that is it's got all the meat and the key points in there. But it's not all the legalese. You know, it's two or three pages as opposed to 18 pages. But I have in the bottom, what's been really good for me, it's binding letter of intent, which is pretty rare. Most people say, oh, letter of intent is non-binding. It's like I could draw a contract up on a napkin. It just needs key terms, seller, buyer, price, address, due diligence for a closing date. Boom, there's a contract. What I encourage people to do is get that LOI for me for free, run their own economics. I can help on that if they want. And then start working with the seller and, and propose this, quote, non-threatening letter of intent. And I, I've actually closed on a couple deals with just a letter of intent because I, I sent it to the seller. He signs it. Well, then he, he decides to retrade the deal. And I said, you can't do that. I sent his attorney the long-form contract. And the attorney said, the attorney never read the LOI. He goes, your contract, there's nothing wrong with your contract. It's a fair contract. He goes, my guys don't want to sign it. He doesn't want to sell anymore. He doesn't want to sell that price. I said, but I have a letter of intent. And he said, letter of intents are non-binding. I said, read the last paragraph, which isn't all bold, by the way. It wasn't fine print. It's all bold. This is binding. This is a contract unless we consummate a long-form contract in the next 30 days. And he goes, well, I'll be. And five minutes later, he sent over a signed contract. And I closed the deal like that. Another deal, the guy never even signed it. I went to the bank or title company. They go, we need a contract. We need a contract. I said, that's a contract. Read the whole document. And the guy finally showed up. It took like seven months to get this guy to close it. And he never gave me the due diligence materials. I closed on day zero of my inspection period with an LOI. So typically I tell people do the LOI on your own unless you have questions, but then when you get a red line, call me or we need a contract, I'll draft a contract. Then we get to title work, we do title objections. So typically we do title objections, assignment of leases, bill of sale, a zoning letter on pretty much every file. Some people do the contract themselves. Some people do the financial underwriting and modeling themselves. A lot of them do the due diligence themselves. And then if issues come up where there's like, you're buying out the LLC or you're doing a syndication, those typically fall more in lawyer world and then we get the call. Are there any, anything or is there anything that sticks out to you from your, say, first mobile home park deal or syndication that, that you would change with what you know now? Maybe one or two of the biggest things. Well, I mean, park owned homes are the homes that you rent and you're basically in little detached apartments there. There's pros and cons of park owned homes. You know, if you rent a lot for 300, you can rent the home for 700. So the pros, obviously, more gross revenue. But the downside on the parkland homes is you got a lot more repairs, a lot more maintenance, and you got a lot more cash in the deal because they're hard to finance. So on my first deal, I couldn't go as fast. I think I had like 90000 to put into parkland homes, but I had to fill like 15 of them. So I had to spend fifteen, sell it, do it again. And I eventually I recycled the same money. So it would be better if I had 200000 laying around instead of ninety, and I could have done it faster. But in another deal, I had to put like 250000 in the parkland homes. And I was there like, I got a quarter million dollars in parkland homes. What am I doing? But that was a market in the trade area that required used homes, not new homes. So I guess what I, what I would do better is, is really evaluate if it's a, a new home or a used home market and then how that impacts my implementation and the lease-up plan relative to how much liquid cash I have and am willing to contribute to a single project. As far as purchasing mobile home parks or, and you as an operator, or even working with other operators, how do you prepare for a potential downturn? Well, I mean, I don't want to say that we're recession resistant, but to some degree we are because the 
$2,000 a month high-rise apartments in downtown. You know, if you're a, a young CPA making 60 grand, you probably like to live there. But, you know, if you get laid off, you're moving to the B apartments. Or you get a, if you don't get a raise, you move to B apartments. People in the B apartments move to C, move into apart- mobile home parks. So in a recession, we get more demand. I mean, we sold more houses in March and April when COVID hit than we could ever imagine. And we were within, the, and so did everybody in the industry, which is why like right now, some of the manufacturers have not taken orders in six months because the demand was to the roof. A bunch of private equity groups, REITs, have come into the asset class in the last year because they see mobile homes as recession or resistant. So we're kind of in the right space for that. But of course, we still have we still have our reserves. We still, you know, try to be conservative on our underwriting assumptions, conservative on our budgets. You know, maintain our banking relationships. You know, all kind of the normal you know, risk averse strategies. But frankly, we're kind of sitting in the cap seat relative to other real estate classes. The market has recognized that as indicated by our cap rates being compressed you know, at record numbers. What do you predict to happen in the real estate market over the next 6 to 12 months? Well, I think it depends on what the tax code does with President-elect Biden. And I know he's, he's, at the time of this recording, there's still a little gray area whether or not that's going to go through. I think it's looking more and more likely by the minute. If he changes the 1031 code or takes away carried interest or increases tax rates above and beyond what they were, were in the Obama, what they are now, what they were in the Obama administration, I think it's bad for the whole economy. And I think it's bad for real estate. Overall, I think real estate is a great long-term play because, you know, just consistent returns and cash flow. And it's, it's a hard asset, right? I mean, I don't know if Tesla's worth what they say it's worth, but you got a 38-unit apartment. It's probably the bricks and the doors and the windows and the dirt's going to be there five years from now. I don't do the Bitcoin thing, you know, you know, kind of like Warren Buffett, I guess I don't understand it, so I don't want to play with it. I think the real estate market's going to be fine. I think in the long run, it's going to do really well. The short run, is going to be very dependent on government policy, including if AOC and some of the progressives get their way with rent control or rent abatement more than eviction moratorium, then that's going to topple the economy. I don't, I don't think it's going to go through, but those kind of macroeconomic forces can ruin. I mean, you, you've seen the experiments in Argentina and these other South American and Eastern European countries. And there are people, you know, a lot of young people in this country that think that's a, a great view of the world. And if enough of them vote that way, I'm probably going to retire and you know, go somewhere warm. You know, it's, they're not going to, you know, the juice ain't worth the squeeze to work that hard to get 32% of it or something. You know. Do you have a couple of daily habits that you're disciplined about that have helped you achieve success? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a Tony Robbins junkie and a Robin Sharma, some of those personal development coach guys. And Gone to some of their seminars, read their books, and I, we do a week. Our team, we all do a weekly planning, a very detailed weekly planning organization. Then we do a daily plan, which is based kind of similar to the book by Gary Keller, The One Thing, that daily plan. And then Robin Sharma's book, The Five A.M. Club, just getting up at five instead of you can sleep ten hours. But I used to get up at seven and stay up till two. Now I get up at five, stay up till midnight, and it's the same five hours. But there's something about being up in the morning before your kids, before I said before my wife, and then my wife does it. She gets up, she was great. You know, she makes dinner, exercises, prays a rosary, does her morning reading before the kids wake up. And I'm like, that's awesome. And then she got the whole day. Life's going through. So I'd say getting up before the sun is it ain't no secret, but it's been good for our team. And then just daily and weekly planning. That's incredible that you bring that up. It was life changing to me once I determined it was determined to get up at like four thirty, five o'clock every morning. My wife and I both have done it now for a few years, and 
And I heard a guy on the show not too long ago, he talked about how, and I haven't forgotten this, he said, you know, getting up at five instead of like seven or eight o'clock in the morning gives you almost another month in your year. <laughs> you know, I just thought, wow, you know, think about that time that you're gaining and you just highlighted it there and definitely a great example of making that happen. Uh, what about your best source for meeting new investors right now? Really, it's I've got my podcast, Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. So that's brought a ton of people. I mean, I wish I had enough deal flow for the investor flow. So I've been real involved in Kansas City. I'm on the CCIM board and been on the board at Urban Land Institute. So I know other real estate professionals at the, the local market, but through LinkedIn and through the podcast, my network has become national. So people call me and some people, you know, they're not on my investor list. I don't have hundred million dollars of deals coming out of Pike. So I don't, there's family offices and, and some of these guys, they call it and I don't know if they're real, but they seem like they are, but they call, I've got 30 million. I need a place by the end of the year. Can you help me out? Like, not to that scale. I wish I could. So this is such a unique asset class that there's not a lot of syndicators out there that are doing it. And I think my, my educational background has helped me on that where a lot of the guys in the field, not to disparage them, but they're flipping houses six months ago and now they're syndicating. And when I say, you know, I was working, I worked on the biggest project in Kansas city, $600 million project three years ago. You know, I was doing complex real estate. Now I'm doing syndication in the long park. It just gives guys a level of comfort and yeah, I'm appreciative of that. Um, and we've delivered, you know, we've done, I don't know, I've probably been involved in 30 projects and between retail and MHP and never lost money in any of them. So, so far so good. So that helps too. Sure. What's the number one thing that's contributed to your success? I think just focus on exceptionalism. My mentor at the law firm said, we have three rules here. You know, practice exceptional law, have fun, make money. If you practice exceptional law, people are going to love you. Your clients are going to love you. You're going to do great projects. It's going to be fun. If you're practicing law and you're having fun, if people are going to be coming at you, when to hire you, you're going to make money. Don't focus on the money. Focus on exceptional legal work. We do that from a planning, from a, an operations, from a financial underwriting. And then on the legal business, I got a couple of new lawyers working for me and I'm just like pounding into them. Like, you can't, a, a comma off is wrong. It's not close. And the math, a penny off is not close. It's wrong. So we just, you know, we make mistakes with anybody else, but to not make the same mistake twice is the key. How do you like to give back? Well, I mean, it depends on the time of my life. I mean, right now, you know, I'm, I'm involved in men's groups, church group, Catholic, we tie 10% of our income. I give lots of legal advice and business advice to friends and family, consulting kind of stuff for free. In the past, I've done things like lead men's ministry, big brother, big sister program. Right now, in the stage of my life with kids, I'm really just focusing on our family and our ministry with other families here in, in this group around in Kansas City called Domestic Church. My wife and I are leading that this year, and it's really been good. So and I've been on, I'm on boards and some boards and stuff too, but that's I feel like that's quasi giving back, quasi business development. So I don't guys don't count it the same way. Sure. Grateful for your time and just sharing your expertise about mobile home parks. I love how you, how you just mentioned earlier too, like to not make the same mistake twice is key. And we're all going to make mistakes numerous times, but hopefully we're not making the same one over and over. Right. So thank you for bringing that out as well. How can people get in touch with you and learn more about you? My website is the MHPlawyer.com. The Amazon mobile agent home peas and park.com. That's probably the easiest way to find me. I'm on LinkedIn and other stuff. My email's Ferd, F-E-R-D, at the MHPlawyer.com. Any of those ways will work. Awesome. That's a wrap, Ferd. Thank you very much. Right. Thank you. I appreciate it. Don't go yet. Thank you for listening to today's episode. 
I would love it if you would go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. I want to hear your feedback. It makes a big difference in getting the podcast out there. You can also go to the Real Estate Syndication Show on Facebook so you can connect with me and we can also receive feedback and your questions there that you want me to answer on the show. Subscribe too so you can get the latest episodes. Lastly, I want to keep you updated. So head over to lifebridgecapital.com and sign up for the newsletter. If you're interested in partnering with me, sign up on the contact us page so you can talk to me directly. Have a blessed day and I will talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Syndication Show brought to you by LifeBridge Capital. LifeBridge Capital works with investors nationwide to invest in real estate while also donating 50% of its profits to assist parents who are committing to adoption. LifeBridge Capital, making a difference, one investor and one child at a time. Connect online at www.lifebridgecapital.com for free material and videos to further your success.